You are listening to episode 47 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. Everything suits me that suits your designs, oh my universe. Nothing is too early or too late for me that is in your good time. All is fruit for me that your seasons bring, O nature. All proceeds from you, all subsists in you, and to you all things return. Meditations 4.23 The Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius was a deeply spiritual person, and that fact comes across clearly in his meditations. The American philosopher and religious scholar Jacob Needleman suggests that the combination of metaphysical vision— poetic genius, and the worldly realism of a ruler within the meditations of Marcus Aurelius inspire us and give us honorable and realistic hope in our embattled lives. As a result, he argues, the meditations deserve its unique place among the writings of the world's great spiritual philosophers, end quote. Needleman elaborates on the spiritual impact Marcus's meditations has on many of its readers. Quote, Marcus is seeking to experience from within himself the higher attention of what he calls the logos, or universal reason. So, too, the sensitive reader begins to listen for that same finer life within his own psyche. That is to say, the reader, you and I, is not simply given great ideas, which he then feeds into his already formed opinions and rules of logic. The action of many of these meditations is far more serious than that and far more interesting and spiritually practical. In a word, in such cases, in many of these meditations, we are being guided, without even necessarily knowing what to call it. We are being guided through a brief moment of inner work. We are being given a taste of what it means to step back in ourselves and develop an intentional relationship to our own mind." End quote. The practice of Stoicism for Marcus was a means to find his place in the cosmos. He sought congruity with nature and learned to love what fate had in store for him because he trusted in a providential cosmos. As David Hicks asserts, The Stoicism in which Marcus believed is rooted in an all-encompassing nature, everything in man and in the universe, everything that is or ought to be, everything fated and everything free and the logos, or rational principle, that informs everything and ties everything together and is ultimately identified with the deity. All of this is found in nature, and there is nothing else. End quote. Stoicism provided Marcus with more than an abstract intellectual understanding of human and cosmic nature. The religious nature of Stoic philosophy differentiated it from other philosophies as well as organized religions. I covered the religious nature of Stoicism previously, so I won't address that fully here. However, it is important to understand that Stoicism was more than an intellectual endeavor for Marcus. Stoicism provided him a rational form of spirituality, and it offers the same for us moderns. Stoicism is an alternative for those who consider themselves spiritual but not religious. If you're uncomfortable with the dogmas of organized religion and the nihilism of atheism, Stoicism offers a middle ground, 
Stoicism provides a spiritual way of life guided by reason. Stoicism relies on our innate connection with the rationality permeating the cosmos to guide our human reason toward a relationship with the divine that inspires us to develop our moral character and thereby experience true well-being. As Mark Forrester wrote in his insightful book, The Spiritual Teachings of Marcus Aurelius, quote, Stoicism was the most highly spiritualized form of philosophy in ancient Greece and Rome. It was so spiritualized that it is as accurate to call it a religion as a philosophy, end quote. And as Henry Sedgwick points out in his biography of Marcus Aurelius, the traditional religions did not provide what he was looking for, quote, Marcus was seeking a religion, as I have said, but there was none at hand that he could accept. The old Roman religion was a mere series of ceremonies, and nothing sacred except lingering patriotic sentiment and withal marred by superstitions, such as those of Lenuvium. Foreign religions were no better. Syrian priests, like Montebanks, trundled images of the Magna Mater about the countryside, hoping to wheedle peasants out of their pennies. The worshippers of the Egyptian gods offered sensuous exaltation and mysteries that disregarded reason. Christianity, as we understand it, was utterly unknown to him. He was compelled to look for a religion in philosophy, for there only, as he thought, and perhaps thought truly, could a man, without doing wrong to his reason, find spiritual help to enable him to do his duty and keep his soul pure. End quote. Marcus did not find consolation in the rituals of traditional religions or the mediations of priests. He was looking for psychological strength and consolation which could allow him to keep his mind pure in trying times and under troublesome circumstances. Marcus discovered the personal religious practice he was looking for within the deeply spiritual philosophy of Stoicism. And as a result, his life became an example of the power of Stoicism in a person's inner life. Sedgwick argues, quote, Marcus Aurelius is not a prodigy among men, unheralded by what has come before. On the contrary, he is the ripe product of the spiritual movement that expressed itself in the Stoic philosophy, or rather, as it had then become, the Stoic religion. As can be seen in his meditations, Marcus followed the Stoic path and became his own priest in service to the gods. Quote, for such a man who no longer postpones his endeavor to take his place among the best is indeed a priest and servant of the gods, behaving rightly toward the deity stationed within him, so enduring that the mortal being remains, unpolluted by pleasures, invulnerable to every pain, untouched by any wrong, unconscious of any evil, a wrestler in the greatest contest of all. Meditations 3.4.3 in Meditations 3.16, Marcus draws upon the importance of the divine while discussing four models of human behavior. Quote, body, soul, intellect. For the body, sense impressions. For the soul, impulses. For the intellect, judgments. To receive impressions by means of images is something that we share with even the cattle. And to be drawn this way and that by the puppet strings of impulse, we share with wild beasts, with the catamites, and with a Phalarius or a Nero, and to have the intellect as a guide toward what appear to be duties is something that we share with those who do not believe in the gods, with those who betray their country, with those who will do anything whatever behind locked doors. If you share everything with those I have just mentioned, there remains the special characteristic of a good person, 
namely to love and welcome all that happens to him and is spun for him as his fate, and not to defile the guardian spirit seated within his breast, nor to trouble it with a host of fancies, but to preserve it in cheerful serenity, following God in an orderly fashion, never uttering a word that is contrary to the truth, nor performing any action that is contrary to justice. End quote. In this passage, Marcus outlined three aspects of the Stoic self and their corresponding capacities. Then he uses these to delineate four behavior models. First, let's look at the three aspects of self, body, soul, and intellect. According to Marcus, the body is correlated with sense impressions, the soul with impulses, and the intellect with judgments. Now, it would be a mistake to impose a platonic conception of a divided mind here. The mind is a unified whole in Stoicism. As Christopher Gill notes, quote, This threefold division differs from the standard Stoic view that psychological processes are also physical and are functions of an animating breath, or pneuma. However, the division is probably best taken as an essentially ethical one. Marcus urges himself to identify with his rational and potentially virtuous mind or ruling center, rather than indicating the deliberate adoption of a non-standard, platonic-style view of psychology. In his introduction to the same translation, Gill wrote, quote, Marcus sometimes stresses that we are, essentially, our ruling or governing center, our mind, hegemonicon, sometimes contrasting this with other aspects of our self, including flesh, and more surprisingly, suke, which he uses to mean breath or vitality. On the face of it, this looks like a shift toward platonic-style dualism, distinguishing between the disembodied mind and the body in a way that is quite inconsistent with the Stoic view that our psychological functions are all bodily ones. But examined more closely, it is clear that such passages are really making an ethical point, one that reflects the first Stoic theme noted earlier. What Marcus is stressing, like Epictetus in similar phrases, is that the really important aspect of human nature is the capacity to use the mind or governing part to try to live virtuously, rather than attaching supreme value to matters of indifference, such as material goods or sensual pleasures. End quote. Next, Marcus uses these three aspects of the self to delineate four models of behavior. We'll look at these one at a time. Number one, those who are driven by sense impressions, or fantasia. To receive impressions by means of images is something we share even with cattle. Number two, those who are driven by desires, the Greek horme. Marcus described this as being drawn this way and that by the puppet strings of impulse. And he said that we shared this with wild beasts, with the catamites, and with the likes of Phalarius or Nero. Number three, those who are driven by their intellect or noose alone. To have the intellect as a guide toward what appears to be duties is something that we share even with those who do not believe in gods, with those who betray their country, with those who will do anything whatever behind locked doors, end quote. So far, we see the progression from behaviors that we share with animals in number one and number two to those of the intellect, rationality in number three, which is unique to humans. Now, For the Stoics, rationality is not good per se, because the intellect can be used for virtuous and vicious ends. Marcus paints a pretty ugly picture of those who use their intellect, their rationality, to live non-virtuous lives. 
In ancient Rome and modern times, people of high intellect often use it to gain power and manipulate and control people to vicious ends. Thus, intellect alone is not a sign of excellence or virtue. Marcus draws a clear distinction between those who rely on intellect alone and those who are guided by their guardian spirit or daimon. As used by Marcus and Epictetus, the concept of daimon creates some difficulties that are impossible for us to fully resolve from the surviving text. However, one thing is clear, the daimon within each of us connects us to the divine. Thus, it is the God that dwells within, which we saw in Seneca. The point here is this, man is not the measure of all things, contra protagoras. The divine cosmos, nature, is the measure of all things. And the Stoics suggest that our guiding principle, that fragment of the Logos within us, provides us with a connection to nature that allows us to both understand and follow nature. Now, in number four, we will see the characteristics of those guided by that divine within, by that daimon. Number four is those who are guided by their guardian spirit, their daimon, to love what happens and use events to live virtuously. Quote, if you share everything else with those whom I have just mentioned, there remains the special characteristic of a good person. And Marcus delineates several. This person loves and welcomes all that happens to them and is spun for them as their fate. This person does not defile the guardian spirit seated within their breast, nor trouble it with a host of fancies, but preserves it in cheerful serenity. This person follows God in an orderly fashion. They never utter a word that is contrary to the truth and never act contrary to justice. Now, the first characteristic of a person guided by their guardian spirit is their love for, quote, all that happens to them, end quote. Again, in Meditations 2, 12 through 13, Marcus juxtaposes the persons who, quote, hold fast to the guardian spirit within, end quote, with those whose sole focus is on intellectual pursuits. Quote, Consider, too, how a human being makes contact with God, and through what part of himself, and how that part of him must be disposed if he is to do so. There is nothing more pitiable than a man who makes the circuit of everything, and as the poet says, searches into the depths of the earth, and tries to read the secrets of his neighbor's soul, yet fails to perceive that it is enough to hold fast to the guardian spirit within him and serve it single-mindedly. And this service is to keep it pure from passion and irresponsibility and dissatisfaction with anything that comes from gods or human beings. For what comes from the gods is worthy of reverence because of their goodness, and what comes from human beings should be dear to us because we share a common nature. End quote. Both of these passages provide an expression of Marcus's trust in a providential cosmos, which is a fundamental part of the practice of Stoicism. Marcus Aurelius understood and accepted the Stoic worldview, which includes a rationally ordered and providential cosmos. Additionally, Marcus relied on the Stoic theory of psychology, which asserts that our emotions are connected to our value judgments. Therefore, he understood how one's accepted worldview could affect their judgment of the events in the world. In his meditations, Marcus links acceptance of a providential worldview to a cheerful mind in 2.3 and sees a call to action within it, 2.4. Again, in Meditations 4.3.5, he suggests that our resentment of the circumstances of our lives is the result of denying providence. 
as Dragona Manachu, makes clear, quote, divine providence is a firm belief of Marcus Aurelius's. He declares, quote, the gods exist and have concern for human affairs, end quote. The whole divine economy is pervaded with providence, end quote. He considers life, quote, not worth living unless there exists providential gods, end quote and believes that the existence of providential gods is a by far more plausible and acceptable alternative to Adam's chance or confusion, end quote. Now, some people attempt to downplay Marcus's commitment to the Stoic providential cosmos by suggesting that his providence or Adam's theme is demonstrative of ambivalence or agnosticism about providence. There is scant scholarly support for such an assertion beyond those with clear intent to remove physics and theology from Stoicism to suit their prior commitment to atheism. Likewise, some modern scholars accuse Marcus or late Stoics of engaging in, quote, psychological rationalization, end quote, concerning their trust in the providential cosmos. John Sellers acknowledges Marcus Aurelius's dependence on providence in his contribution to a companion to Marcus Aurelius and defends Marcus from this accusation. He points out that Marcus employed the concept of providence to support Stoic value theory. While Sellers acknowledges that, quote, few modern philosophers are likely to embrace the Stoic conception of providence, end quote, nevertheless, he considers its use in this argument a, quote, considered philosophical position, end quote. Even though the meaning of some of Marcus's Providence or Adams passages appear unclear when considered individually, Few scholars doubt Marcus's commitment to providence. As Pierre Haydo notes, quote, Whatever modern historians may claim, the dilemma, either providence or atoms, when used by Seneca or by Marcus Aurelius, does not signify either the renunciation of Stoic physical theories or an eclectic attitude which refuses to decide between Epicureanism and Stoicism. In fact, we can see that Marcus has already made his choice between Epicureanism and Stoicism by the very way in which he describes the Epicurean model, with a variety of pejorative terms, end quote. In some passages, Marcus does assert that one must live like a Stoic regardless of which worldview one assents to. However, this is not an endorsement of the chance universe of the Epicureans. Neither is Marcus suggesting the outcome will be the same regardless of which worldview one chooses. Instead, Marcus states the obvious. The option of either a providential cosmos or a random universe is outside of our control. Therefore, it is pointless and psychologically disturbing to fight against it either way. One must live as a Stoic, rationally, regardless of which worldview one accepts. Nevertheless, the psychological consolations derived from trust in the providential cosmos are essential to Marcus. As David Sedley notes in his chapter titled Marcus Aurelius on Physics, in a companion to Marcus Aurelius, quote, In reminding himself to apply physical thinking to every idea he entertains, Marcus captures a vital aspect of his meditations. The question what part physics plays in Stoic ethics has been a frequent subject of modern debate. In Marcus... We may find no theoretical answer to this question, but we get to see, worked out in practice, his recognition that reflection on how the cosmos function is an absolutely integral part of the Stoic moral life. Throughout his reflections on human values, he can be seen constantly turning to the cosmos as a concept to think with. Marcus's cosmos, or world, is recognizably and indeed technically Stoic. 
It is a single, finite, cohesive organism surrounded by void. Partly as a consequence, it is entirely self-contained and cohesive in its functioning, internally governed by the inexorable sequence of causes known as fate. So far as its underlying constitution is concerned, it is composed out of two ultimate terms, of which one is a pliable material substrate, and the other acting upon this, a single, intelligent, divine, causal power, sometimes identified with its seminal reason, end quote. Marcus did not ignore or reject Stoic physics. Instead, by the time Marcus was practicing Stoicism in the 2nd century CE, almost 500 years after the founding of the Stoa by Zeno, there was no need to elaborate or defend technical, philosophical arguments supporting Stoic physics. Those who chose the Stoic path assented to the providential nature of the cosmos as a fundamental axiom of Stoic physics, in the same way that they assented to virtue as the only good as an axiom of Stoic ethics. They understood that neither could be proven, yet both were necessary to live the Stoic life. The early Greek Stoics established the veracity of these axioms and integrated them into their holistic philosophical system. By the time Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus chose the Stoic path, those axioms were accepted without a great deal of argumentation or elaboration as essential for the practice of Stoicism. Now, many moderns question the necessity of providence for the practice of Stoicism. To do so, they must modify Stoicism in a way that removes one of its most potent psychological tools, a trust that all events in nature, even those that we would typically judge as bad, have a purpose and serve the good of the whole. This trust and the attitude of gratitude that springs from it are expressed beautifully by Marcus in one of my favorite passages, which I opened this podcast with. Everything suits me that suits your designs on my universe. Nothing is too early or too late for me that is in your own good time. All is fruit for me that your seasons bring, O nature. All proceeds from you, all subsists in you, and to you all things return. Meditations 423. It is simply not possible to make sense of passages like that apart from Marcus's absolute and unequivocal trust in the providential nature of the cosmos. These are not the words of a begrudging acceptance of life events. Marcus exhibits something far more perceptive than the barren forbear attitude toward these events that were not up to him. No, he is expressing a profound trust that every event in nature has a purpose. Marcus didn't need to remind himself about the detailed, technical, philosophical arguments for providence in his journal. He lived it every day of his life, and that was proof enough for him. In his inspirational book, titled Seekers After God, the late Reverend F.W. Ferrer wrote the following about Marcus, quote, I sometimes imagine that I see him seated on the borders of some gloomy Pannonian forest or Hungarian marsh. Through the darkness, the watchfires of the enemy gleam in the distance, but both among them and in the camp around him, every sound is hushed, except the tread of the sentinel outside the imperial tent. And in that tent, long after midnight, sits the patient emperor, with the light of his solitary lamp, and ever and anon, amid his lonely musings, he pauses to write down the pure and holy thoughts, which shall better enable him, even in a Roman palace, even on barbarian battlefields, daily to tolerate the meanness and malignity of the men around him, daily to amend his own shortcomings, 
And as the sun of earthly life begins to set, daily to draw nearer and nearer to the eternal light. And when I thus think of him, I know not whether the whole of heathen antiquity, out of its gallery of stately and royal figures, can furnish a nobler, or purer, or more lovable picture than that of this crowned philosopher and laureled hero, who was yet one of the humblest and one of the most enlightened of all ancient seekers after God. End quote. In Marcus's meditations, we encounter a Roman emperor who wielded unimaginable power over people. With a word, he could have condemned anyone to death. Likewise, Marcus had access to riches beyond the imagination of the world's wealthiest today. He could have purchased anything that his heart desired. Therefore, when we read meditations in modern times, we cannot relate to him as a Roman emperor. His life is nothing like ours. Yet as we read his meditations, the thoughts and attitude of a powerful, wealthy Roman are curiously absent. Instead, we are confronted with the aspirations of a person who desires to live an excellent human life. His aim is not a life of fame and fortune, but moral excellence, genuineness, service, and compassion. We see an authentic human soul confronted by war and surrounded by meddling, ungrateful, violent, treacherous, envious, and unsociable people. Nevertheless, he chose not to surrender to anger and hatred. We see a Stoic who is wholly engaged in the affairs of humanity while keeping his attention on the ideal of moral excellence and trusting that everything that happens is good for the whole. The meditations do not entice us with philosophical theory, even though the Stoic doctrines are evident throughout. They lack the protreptic tone that we see in Epictetus' discourses when he scolds us and challenges us to live a moral life. Equally, the eloquence of Seneca is absent from most of its pages. Nevertheless, as we read the meditations, we find our soul resonating with the inspirational thoughts of a Stoic, who regularly shed the purple robes of the emperor to express his humanity in his personal diary. No, we can't relate to Marcus the Emperor. Fortunately, we can be inspired and uplifted by Marcus the Stoic who left us a breadcrumb trail in his meditations which leads toward moral excellence and a profound, life-changing trust in the providential order of the cosmos. Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.